From Washington, this is CQ on Congress, the nonpartisan source for in-depth analysis of Capitol Hill's policy debates. I am Sean Zeller. Ladies and gentlemen, the days of this committee protecting the president at all costs are over. They're over. Mr. Cohen, if you would please rise and I will begin to swear you in. Raise your right hand. Do you swear or affirm that the testimony that you are about to give is the whole truth and nothing but the truth? So help you God. Let the record show that the witness answered House in Democrats, the affirmative. newly Thank in you. the majority, have promised to do something their Republican predecessors mostly ignored. Use their subpoena power to investigate President Trump and to evaluate the performance of executive branch agencies. Oversight is a core responsibility of Congress, but it gets much fiercer when the House or Senate, or both, are controlled by the party that doesn't hold the White House. House Democrats ramped it up this week. The Oversight and Reform Committee examined the drop in enforcement actions by the EPA. The Judiciary Committee began trying to determine how many immigrant children separated from their parents at the border have not yet been reunited. And the Oversight and Intelligence Panels both took testimony from Michael Cohen, President Donald Trump's former attorney, in an effort to determine whether Trump has broken the law. My guest today is Justin Rood, who heads the Congressional Oversight Initiative for the Project on Government Oversight, a nonprofit that encourages Congress to fulfill its oversight responsibilities. Justin previously worked for Tom Coburn, the Oklahoma Republican senator leading his Homeland Security investigations. He joins us by phone today. Welcome, Justin. Thanks, Sean. It's good to be here. So Elijah Cummings, the Oversight Committee chairman, said it's a new day, that the Democrats are going to be looking closely at President Trump and his administration. Is what we saw in the Cohen hearing, would you define that as rigorous oversight? I think so, yeah. I mean, you saw a, um, a real battery of uh, majority members who were asking some pretty tough and pointed questions. I mean, I think a lot of folks, uh, uh, Presley and Kana and um, AOC, have gotten um, some plaudits, uh, even as members of the committee, right? Really Democrats. Good. and That's right. Right. That's right. Um, asking some really pointed fact-based questions, which I think a lot of people saw as a departure from a, a more typical congressional oversight hearing, which has, you know, 90 percent of grandstanding with 10 percent, you know, new information. I think that uh, the gloves are off and uh, and they're ready to rumble. Uh, and I think you saw the same thing um, on the Republican side. Clearly, these are these are pretty politically charged and partisan issues that they want to look at. And um, I think the Republicans were doing their best at, uh, at trying to play defense a little bit for the administration. Generally speaking, what defines good oversight? I think at its base, good oversight means that you're, um, you're really addicted to facts, that you're dedicated to understanding what really happened. Um, it's always going to be looking backwards. You can't do oversight into the future, obviously. But you're trying to understand as best you can what actually happened. Now, beyond that, I think uh, committees need to be really careful that they have um, a, a legislative uh, authority to be looking into this, that the, the authorities that are given to that committee match up with the questions that they're asking, the information that they're seeking. 
and you'll see uh, you'll see them get slapped down if they go beyond the mandate that the House rules or the Senate rules give them. So I think those are kind of the two key things. I mean, there are other uh, I think other ingredients that we look for for a recipe for what we would consider good oversight. I think we need to see committees that are effectively sourced, that have capable staff, that have a depth of knowledge in these areas and the way some of these agencies operate. You know, one of the biggest challenges to oversight isn't the executive branch, it's the lack of a political will from the leaders on Capitol Hill to go after this information. Because it takes spending political capital. You know, you have to put yourself out there a little bit and get into some fights a little bit to get access to information. Because the typical default for anyone, not necessarily an agency, a private sector entity, anybody, when you start getting asked hard questions is to, you know, to turtle, to pull back into your shell. So you need to kind of, you know, do a little bit of saber rattling. And a lot of folks, uh, a lot of lawmakers would rather move on and go on to the next policy. Or, you know, these days there's a new fire erupting every day um, that they're going to be chasing and going after those headlines. So the ability and the willingness to sit it out and have those fights and fight for that access and get those, get that information are, I think, really kind of the key ingredients that we look for for a sound oversight project. Now, you raise a good point there, which is that Congress has this authority to ask questions, to subpoena information, but at the end of the day, they're asking someone else to give them information back. And that entity, whether it be the executive branch or Michael Cohen or his lawyers, uh, can stonewall, can slow walk, can maybe give back partial information. How do you make sure that, as a, as a congressional overseer, that you're getting the whole story when you ask a question? That's a really big question, I think, now more than ever. Uh, it takes thoroughness to begin with. You need to be asking the right questions, knowing that you're asking for the right documents, that you're getting interviews with the right personnel, with the right officials. Um, you need to be able to verify and double-check the information that they're giving you, so you hope that you have some sort of sources or whistleblowers on the inside. I think we saw with uh, Cummings' recent request a couple weeks ago regarding the, um, the security clearance issues at the White House. Um, that he was very deeply sourced with whistleblowers um, to the point where he had a good portion of the, of the picture of what was going on without getting a single document from the White House. What it sounds like today is they still haven't gotten anything there, and they are starting, starting to threaten those subpoenas. But then the issue becomes, you know, how do you, how do you force compliance with those subpoenas? Um, how do you make sure that the agency is going to be responsive and give you the things you're asking for? Uh, in the face of, a, of an administration who's really kind of, I think, proudly and publicly staked out a position of effectively stonewalling um, and denigrating oversight efforts, you know, how do you, how do you enforce compliance? That's a big question. And you mentioned there are limits, though, on what Congress can do. There are jurisdictional questions. Tell us about that. I mean, wh what are you talking about? Well, the jurisdiction that Congress has to do oversight is, is fairly broad, um, the power of Congress to do oversight uh, stems from their legislative mandate in the Constitution. So the idea is that you can't make good law if you don't have good facts. Um, so that means the jurisdiction for oversight is anything that Congress could legislate on. And that pretty clearly is a, a, a nice, big, thick, heavy blanket that wraps the entire executive branch, more or less, uh, with very few exceptions. But then the question becomes, even if you uh, overcome that, um, the, the authority hurdle, is then how do you enforce that compliance? Even if you have a right to the information, how do you enforce that when an agency simply says no? In the executive branch, you know, you have the FBI, and if they're going to serve a warrant, they can, you know, bring in legions of, uh, you know, of, of armed agents to, to raid an office or a home, as we saw with Roger Stone, um, and cart that information away. Um, Congress doesn't have that power. They have lawyers. 
and lawyers have a certain amount of power. But um, but at the end of the day, um, it takes uh, some informal kind of powers that Congress has. For instance, in the Senate, uh, they have the ability to hold up nominations. Um, in the House, certainly they can uh, make trouble when uh, an agency is looking to reprogram funds or do something to, to address a mission issue. Um, they can hold that up or create issues for them. So uh, frequently, it comes with, uh, comes with some action that Congress can take or not take to impede an executive branch agency from accomplishing what it wants to do and essentially being uh, intransigent uh, in return to the point where the agency sees uh, a, a lower cost to compliance uh, than they do to, to withholding. You're listening to CQ on Congress. You can subscribe at all your favorite podcast apps or find us at rollcall.com. I'm talking to Justin Rood with the Project on Government Oversight about congressional oversight. Uh, Welcome back, Justin. It's been rare in recent years to see bipartisan oversight. And it's most credible, I think, with the public when it is. It seems unlikely, though, that we'll see more bipartisanship this year. And so is partisan oversight still worth something if it's just one party driving it? Uh, it, it is. I want to talk a little bit about that, um, but I do want to question the premise uh, of, your, of your question real briefly. Um, while a lot of the high-profile oversight that happens is partisan, we saw it in the previous Congresses with Benghazi, we're seeing it now, obviously, with the, the work that, that Chairman Cummings is doing at the Oversight Committee, you also have a number of committees who work very, very diligently at maintaining a bipartisan approach to oversight. And I want to call them out and name them and praise them because they deserve it. Uh, the Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations, um, they just came out with a report recently on the uh, Chinese influence on higher education, the money that they're pumping in that's not getting reported. The House Energy and Commerce Committee just spent the last Congress digging into the opioid crisis and really looking at ground zero in West Virginia, where some of the worst abuses occurred. And I'm not talking just about the abuses of the drugs itself. Um, I'm talking about the abuses by the major corporate actors that were taking advantage of American suffering. And that work fed into a big package on opioid reform that they were able to move in the last Congress. So, I mean, this is oversight that's directly in, uh, in service to that legislation. And even House oversight, you know, we, we saw the fireworks at the Cohen hearing. If you remember the, the massive OPM data breach of the information on cleared uh, personnel, on national security personnel. Right, a couple of years ago. Yeah, they did one of the best, most thorough, deepest investigations into uh, an information breach of a, of a government agency that I've ever seen, and that was entirely bipartisan. So it can happen. It doesn't get the kind of attention that I think the, the big fireworks, the Cohen hearing, Benghazi kind of gets, but but it is happening, and it is tradition, and, and there are staff and members who are fighting very hard to protect it. So, now, But your question went to, is partisan oversight still worthwhile? Can yeah, it, I mean, it, I'm thinking particularly here with the investigations into, into President Trump. Well, the question of if they can do something that's worthwhile, I think, is an, is an open one, and we can look back at history and see examples on both sides. Um, you know, you can look at the Benghazi investigation, which I think by all accounts, regardless of where you stand in the political spectrum, that was a pretty partisan investigation. This was the investigation charged. into Hillary Clinton and the, the U.S. diplomats who were killed in Libya a few, a few years back. That's right. That's right. Incredibly time-consuming, resource-consuming, millions of dollars, you know, over 30 hearings, I think, in total. Um, you know, that also un, that unearthed the issue of Hillary Clinton and the Clintons having private email servers that they were using for official business. Um, which is which is a horrible is a horrible abuse should never happen. 
So, you know, even though you have something that was highly partisan, and I think there's there's a strong argument to be said that the, the, the cost of that investigation was not worth what we got out of it, but we still got, I think, credible, important findings that, are, that still, I think, are of concern to folks uh, like us at Pogo who want to see government running effectively and transparently. Um, you look at something like Whitewater. Investigation that, into that President we, Clinton's finances. Exactly. I mean, is that something that, I mean, we, you know, we saw a, a real toll in terms of human suffering that came out of that investigation. Um, and that also put us down the road, obviously, to impeachment and everything else. So, you know, I think that uh, you're definitely on a rockier road um, when you're talking about getting real credible findings going through a partisan process. That said, if you can stick to the facts, if you can hold that the importance of functioning government as your, you know, as your lodestar, you can still do some important good work. Your road is a lot smoother when you do it in a bipartisan way. People are more likely to, to cooperate, to give you the information you're seeking, because they can't go to the other side. You know, if the Democrats are asking for something, the first thing somebody's going to do is go to the Republican side and say, hey, they're beating up on me. Can you help out? And, you know, and you see the results of that in the hearing, the Michael Cohen hearing, where you have half the time them asking questions about Trump and then the Republicans spending all of their time, you know, just trying to tear down the witness. So. You know, I think that the Democrats made a little bit of uh, progress in getting some new facts on the record through that hearing, but it, it was at great cost. What's the cost? Well, the, uh, the cost when you do a partisan investigation um, and w when you're looking at it specifically in, in, uh, in the context of a hearing like this, if you do a, a bipartisan investigation with both sides working together, that was a five-hour hearing. You would have five hours to be laying out your case. Uh, you know, being done jointly by Democratic members and Republican members, trying to put facts on the record of what had gone wrong and what needs to be fixed, right? But when you're doing it in a partisan way, the cost is, is that half of that hearing is going to be spent by people making the case that what you're doing is useless, it's pointless, it's a waste of time, you're, you're damaging people and processes and agencies. So the cost is that as much, of a, of, as much progress as you're able to put down on the record, you're also providing a loudspeaker to the other side to broadcast um, the, the, the best argument they can put together for why your investigation isn't credible. You work for Senator Tom Coburn, uh, the Oklahoma Republican, who was well known for doing this sort of work, particularly for rooting out waste and inefficiencies in government agencies. Can you tell us a little bit about it, what, what it was like? What's the job of a congressional overseer on the staff? Uh, it was one of the best jobs I've ever had. It was fascinating for somebody who has um, has curiosity and, and uh, a real desire to understand the way the world works. I would say the next best job to being a journalist, Sean. So, <laughs> uh, you should look into it if, journalism, right. uh, if doing journalism ever gets old. But I think that uh, one of the key things is, is, trying, is understanding really the fact that the oversight, when it's done by Congress, is inherently political. Anything that's being done by politicians is, is political, and that sounds like an obvious statement, but um, people sometimes look at the oversight process and say, oh, this is, you know, this is just too political. It's going to be political from the moment they get up in the morning um, because that's how it operates. If it's not suiting a political agenda of some sort, it's not going to get pursued. Now, if lawmakers are prone to making functioning government, for instance, or effective government, efficient government, um, something that's in their own self-interest, something that they want to be known for, then suddenly their political interests and the interests of a functioning government are married, right? And I think that's what we saw with Dr. Coburn and one of the reasons why I really enjoyed working with him. I'm not a particularly partisan person, but the work that we got to do, and especially the work that we got to do in conjunction with Carl Levin, Senator Levin, you He's know, we Michigan went hand Democrat, in hand. Yeah. 
That's right. Yeah, long long serving uh, Michigan Democrat, one of the one of the lions of the Democratic Party in the Senate for years, um, and one of the fiercest, I think, um, you know, fiercest oversiders um, overseers in Congress. Um, but we were able to jointly investigate Obama's uh, Department of Homeland Security. We were able to investigate Social Security disability, which is really a third anything revolving Social Security administration is a third rail for a lot of politicians. But because we were able to do it holding hands with the Democrats and the Republicans together, we were able to get some good factual findings and put out some really good work. What does the job entail? Uh, cultivating whistleblowers, seeking them out, uh, looking through documents? Uh, I mean, what are the important skill sets that one needs? I think that the greatest misunderstanding of oversight is that it's 80% getting information and then 20% kind of doing something with it. And, and in fact, about 20% of the job is getting information, which is to say, reviewing documents, conducting interviews, trying to really build that fact pattern, build that timeline, start to understand what was going on and have credible findings. 80% of the job is fighting with people. <laughs> There's so much there's so much conflict involved that really writing a writing a request letter you can do in half an hour. You know, I mean, a good request letter you should take a couple hours on, um, or you know, or a subpoena. You really want to spend some time and you know get different people's opinions and things. But you are then going to spend weeks and weeks fighting over that document, making sure that everything that you're asking for is getting provided. And when the agency comes back and says, "Oh," Those documents were kept in a warehouse, and it belonged to one agency, and then it was transferred, and then the lease ran out, but nobody moved the boxes. You know, having to just kind of go through all these hoops is, um, is the vast majority of the work that you're doing. It's a slog. It's not particularly pleasant. You spend most of your time dealing with people who would rather not be talking to you. Now, Justin, do you have a sense? Uh, one of the, the Cohen hearings was behind closed doors, the Intelligence Committee. Is there something different that happens in that kind of venue? That's a great question. So much of the work that they do is done behind closed doors. And um, I think that uh, Chairman Schiff gets uh, kudos and also, you know, uh, a little bit of flack for being um, as open and talking as much as he does about what they're doing. But it's, at this point, it's really anyone's guess. I would say also to their credit at the House Intelligence Committee and House Democrats generally, you know, the committees have tried to work very closely in coordinating their work so it doesn't come off as kind of a Keystone Cops clown car of oversight. Um, but I understand and there have been reports that, that uh, Chairman Schiff at House Intelligence, uh, House Foreign Affairs, um, uh, Judiciary, um, and Oversight are working to kind of coordinate their efforts. So what any particular committee is looking into, I'm not sure. But it appears, at least for now, that the four of them are kind of dividing and conquering and trying to work in concert rather than working against each other. And Justin, you do a, a what is it, a daily newsletter about oversight? Is that, is that something our listeners could find online? Absolutely. It's called The Paper Trail. It's a twice-weekly roundup of all the best news and insight on congressional oversight, both issues of what's happening on the Hill with oversight, hearings, investigations, request letters and subpoenas, as well as uh, issues that are uh, kind of ripe for congressional oversight. And you can find that on pogo.org, as, long as, uh, as well as all the information on my program, the Congressional Oversight Initiative, which provides training and resources to congressional staff on how to do good, credible, bipartisan, fact-based oversight. All right. Thanks so much, Justin. We appreciate your insights. Thanks, Sean. Anytime. And thank you for joining us. And a special thanks to our producer, Tula Vlaho. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, NPR One, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please rate us on iTunes. For more on this and other stories, visit RollCall.com or find us on Twitter at CQNow or at RollCall.